live from Underdog Studios in Boston, Mass. Welcome to Sonic Typhoon, a podcast for and about rock and rollers, pop culture, and the history of modern music. My name is Lisa Traxler, and I'm a rock and roll DJ for many years, probably most notably from WBCN in Boston, the best in the nation rock and roll station. My very first memory is hearing the Beatles on my mom's radio. Still an important memory. Just as important to me, though, is the first time I ever heard the Ramones. American radio at that moment was bloated. It was often boring. It was something I couldn't relate to. It seemed like sensitive singer-songwriters from Laurel Canyon were duking it out with arena rockers vying for airtime. There were all these flavors of rock, like southern rock and country rock and soft rock, whatever that was. Then four guys from Queens, New York, Forest Hill specifically, stripped all that down to a bare essence. They looked back in time to Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, Buddy Holly, the girl groups of the 60s, and even bubblegum music. And they took that essence and they put it on steroids. The result was aggressive, loud, sped up, with shortened songs, minimalistic and sometimes moronic lyrics. Simple ideas like, I don't want to go down to the basement. I'm a teenage lobotomy. I don't want to be a pinhead no more. You sound like you're sick. Beat on the brat with a baseball bat. Glad to see you go. And of course, their biggest hit, I Want to Be Sedated. Johnny, Joey, Dee Dee, and Tommy Ramone were not brothers, but they adopted the same surname. And they had a unified vision for the future of rock, which leaned on the roots of the past. Life is kind of funny sometimes. The Ramones, as a band, changed a lot of my outlook on the most important thing in my life, which was music. And Somehow, for many years, my phone machine had messages on it that sounded a lot like this one. Hi, it's Joey. It's uh, Thursday at 7 o'clock. I'll call you some other time. Bye. Joey Ramone, the amazing, unique, charismatic singer and frontman for the band, he and I became great pals from the moment we met in 1981. Later in this podcast, I'll tell you the funny story of how we met and became friends. We'd meet up in whatever town I was living in or visiting, Dallas or Denver or Kansas City or Austin or whatever, when they were on tour. But we talked at least three times a week for many years because I was always getting used to a new place to live. And Joey was a phonaholic. Over the course of the next roughly 45 minutes or so, you'll hear discussions of the 70s and 80s underground rock scene in New York, as well as Boston, and stories about musicians from the Dictators to Richard Hell to Blue Oyster Cult to the Dead Boys, There'll be stories about CBGBs, about songwriting and recording, and about luminaries from filmmaker Woody Allen to authors Norman Mailer and Stephen King. You'll hear a reference to the Apology phone line in New York, which recorded actual confessions from the general public to play back for callers who could then leave their own confession at the end when they heard the beep. You'll hear about a rare opportunity for you to see and maybe even acquire some of the most iconic rock memorabilia in the world with an amazing auction happening in Boston in the fall of 2021. And you'll hear funny and interesting stories about friendship told with great humor and much love. Today, I'm hanging on the telephone with my special guest, Daniel Ray, the Ramones producer and co-songwriter and an integral part of the New York rock scene. Recorded phone calls don't make for the best fidelity in the world, but the conversation is great. And I promise you're going to hear stories you've never heard before. So one of the people that Joey would often mention to me was a guy that did a lot of work with the Ramones as a producer, as a songwriter, sometimes as an instrumentalist, and always, always as a friend. In fact, Joey once referred to him as the fifth Ramone. 
And that guy was Daniel Ray. And I'm so pleased after all these years to finally meet you, Daniel, even if we can't be together in person. It's awesome to have this chance to chat with you. Please welcome Daniel Ray. That's awesome, yes. In, in honor of Joey, we'll do it on the phone, right? I think he'd approve of our meeting this way. Yeah, he did love the phone. How did you first get connected with the Ramones? Well, like a lot of people, when I first heard them, they changed my life, made half of my records obsolete, and um, opened the door to a whole new world that I was waiting to find, you know? You were involved with the band and its members on many projects, individual projects for a lot of years. Um, you were their friend, of course, and also their co-writer and their producer, too. Tell me about some of the songs and the albums that you worked on with them. Uh, well, the first one was uh, Daytime Dilemma, which was from uh, Too Tough to Die. And then I uh, did um, Halfway to Sanity and um, Brain Drain. And uh, the last one, Adios Amigos. And all the other records... Even if I didn't produce it, I was involved either playing or uh, helping with the arranging or uh, working with Joey on songs for it. And then I did a bunch of different singles and live, live stuff. So basically when I got involved with them, I sort of stayed involved with them in some way or another until the end. Uh -huh. And were you involved in the writing of Pet Cemetery? Yep. I wrote that one with Dee Dee. So that really surprised me because that I read that and I thought for sure Joey had written that because um, he was such a Stephen King fan, but it was yeah. Dee Dee. It was Dee Dee. Dee Dee was a really quick, quick writer. Ramones got the call. Stephen King wants you to write Pet Cemetery song. And Dee Dee bought the book that an hour later <laughs> and read it really fast and called, my, called me up with lyrics. That night I came up with some music and the next day we had a demo. And this was, you know, Joey hadn't even like gotten out of bed <laughs> Yet. But yeah, me and Didi did that. Ah, it's a great song. Yeah, it's a good one. Can you say a little bit about the early days of your involvement with the Ramones? I was playing in a band called Shrapnel. We were playing at CBGB's and stuff, and we had become friends with Legs. And through that connection, we met Joey. Our bands just started opening shows for the Ramones back in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just became friends. Well, the Legs that you mentioned is Legs McNeil, who was the founder of Punk Magazine. Mm -hmm. And was Shrapnel's uh, manager at one point, is that right? Yep, in the beginning, that's right. Uh -huh. So you guys met the Ramones through Legs. And yeah, hanging course... out at CBGB's, you know. But the first time uh, we actually went to CBGB's was um, to see the Dictators. Because we were huge Dictators fans. Because the Dictators record came out actually about nine months before the Ramones album. That was sort of like the whole bridge between like the Blue Oyster Cult and what would be the punk rock CBGB's. Dictators kind of the bridge to that. We went to Asbury Park in the summer of 76 to see the Ramones for the first time. That was the first time they played at Asbury Park. And when we were there, one of the dictators, Top 10, was there. And he told us about this club in New York that they're going to be playing at called CBGB's, which we wrote down on a piece of paper, mm -hmm. Bowery and Bleecker. And uh, two weeks later, we went there to see the, the dictators. We met Legs McNeil there and, you know, the rest was history. <laughs> yeah. Had he started Punk Magazine at that point? Yeah. The first so, time we went there, we saw all these stickers that says, punk is coming, punk is coming. Because, you know, it wasn't even called punk rock, really, you know. I mean, Ramones mentioned Judy's a punk, but it really, yeah. you know, the punk rock was starting to happen. But Were those stickers made by John Holmstrom by any chance? Yep, yep. And he stuck them all over the clubs and the streets, uh, posts and stuff. 
Yeah. John was one of the few Joey friends that I actually had in common with Joey. (laughs) I'm not a good friend of John's, but I have hung out with him a couple of times. Um, I think the last time was a few years ago, actually, when there was a display of Dee Dee's artwork in Cambridge, Mass. And he came up actually with Arturo. So I guess it was some time back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think Legs and John hate each other these days, but that's that's par for the course. (laughs) Well, it's that punk attitude. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, here's another Joey Ramon message. Oh, Lisa, it's Joey. How you doing? Um, It's it's, um, 4.30, and today's, I think it's Monday. And I called to do the interview with you, and, and uh, that's it. So, call me back. I'm Lisa Traxler, and this is Sonic Typhoon. Now back to our conversation with Ramon's producer, Daniel Ray. Let's talk about Shrapnel, your band from the early days at CBGB's, and what it was like to be in that 70s and 80s scene in New York. You guys had an awful lot in common sound-wise and approach-wise with the Ramones at that time. Yeah, well, you know, they were kind of heroes of ours. In addition to CBs, though, in addition to CBGBs, you played a lot of other things. In fact, I I read somewhere once that you guys were a favorite of, uh, or at least played for Woody Allen. No, that was, um, um, we had met Norman Mailer because uh, Legs was interviewing him or something. and We started hanging out with him, and I think he got a kick out of us because we dressed in army clothes at military kind of funny songs and um we just hang out with him and then he asked us if we wanted to play at his uh, wife's birthday party and this was at his um his house in brooklyn heights beautiful house with all these different layers levels and lofts and ropes to climb up so he put us up on this loft and um we were playing and looking out in the audience there was woody allen kurt Vonnegut, and all these other famous writers and musicians wow and it was, it was kind of surreal you know Mailer was really funny. He was great. He used to uh, give us little little speeches and stories about, he, he would talk about when he was in the army, they would get a six pack of beer for the weekend. And he wanted to know our opinion. Should, should we drink two at a time so it lasts for the whole weekend? Or should we drink all six at once so we get wasted? <laughs> Obviously, a- it was drink all six at once. But so. we went to this party. We were, we were hanging out at the time with um, Glenn Buxton, who was the guitar player for Alice Cooper Group. Yep. And... Um, he was at the party, and the party was kind of over, and Glenn and, and Norman started to get, they were a little drunk, and they started to wrestle a little bit. And um, Norman Miller headbutted Glenn Buxton. <laughs> he was bleeding oh a little bit in his forehead. We're like, this is surreal. Alice Cooper, guitar player, one of our heroes, and Norman Mailer, one of our favorite writers, they're wrestling in the kitchen. And then uh, we were leaving, and, Walt, and um, Mailer was giving us bottles of scotch, which we had never drank before. You know, we were 17, 18 years old. He's like, here, drink this. It's good for you. But um, yeah, it was quite, quite an experience. Man, that's a really bizarre little story from the corners of pop culture. He was at CBGB's too. He saw us play at CB's. I thought it was interesting that Shrapnel, you guys were actually in a Spider-Man comic book. Wow, yeah, we were. We were which very is... early on, which was really cool. In that comic book, Peter Parker, I guess who was Spider-Man, actually goes to CBGB's to see us play. I think through Legs or CBGB's, the, um, the, the writer, Denny O'Neill, I think he wrote it. He said CBGB's and he, liked, he saw the band and liked the band and stuff like that. It was just one of those weird, surreal, right place at the right time kind of things. Like Norman Mailer's birthday party. A CBGB's was quite uh, an interesting place. I, I was in a band for a while and I actually played CBGB's. Mm-hmm. And 
I was kind of taken aback by the fact this is also a weird little corner of pop culture, but CBGB's, the owner, Hilly Crystal, had a dog that was very um, prolific in that club on the floors. <laughs> I remember the dog. I forget the dog's name, but I remember the dog. First times we went there, he was around and pooping everywhere. Everywhere. It was yeah. like you couldn't even walk in that club without stepping in a pile. It was the yeah. weirdest thing. That, that's a, 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 a dividing line. You remember the dog poop or did you come in after the dog poop? They also used to sell food there when you went to see a show and they had great burgers. You know, I heard that. I never ate at CBGB's, but I did hear that. And when the Dead Boys got signed, I think they lived off of those burgers. I think, uh, didn't Hilly manage them at some point? Yeah. So they got free burgers. They got free booze and free burgers, which was... Well, that's pretty good. Worked out for them. (laughs) It works out for them. So at the time, the Ramones were just getting started in New York. A lot of people think of the New York scene at that time as Ramones, Blondie, and Talking Heads. But there were a lot of things. There's, of course, the shirts, the dictators, the rattlers, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, uh, Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers, Television, Patti Smith, Lydia Lunch, The Contortions, Lounge Lizards. I could go on and on. Velvet Underground, of course, can't forget them. This was all part of the scene at that time. It was a really thriving scene yeah. and an amazing time. What was it like to be in New York at that time? Um, you know, every time you'd go to CB's, you'd see something new and exciting. I remember seeing, going to see the Ramones there, and the opening group was called the Cramps. You know, which I remember the Cramps, yeah. The Cramps, one of the greatest uh, New York bands. And uh, Suicide was like nothing else we've ever seen, um, the intensity of it. and. Um, then every once in a while, a band from England would come over. You know, we'd see the X- X-ray specs or... Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I, saw, I saw the police there once. It was about 15, 20 people in the audience, you know. So that was probably on their first tour. I heard that yeah. they stole a van for that tour. I'm not sure if that's just legend or if it's really true. I don't know. We just went because they were from England and they had a poster. You know, yeah. those bands didn't really have a poster. So we're like, hey, maybe they're good. And Sting had that uh, bright white hair dye fresh off of the um, Quadrophenia yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to also just circle back to Blue Oyster Cult because you mentioned them. And a lot of people sort of think of Blue Oyster Cult for Don't Fear the Reaper and maybe, I forget what their other big hit was. But right. Blue Oyster Cult was really, they, they wrote with Patti Smith. They were very sort of more underground than people realized. Yeah. And they were more, you know, intellectual, you know, and they, they, their lyrics weren't just, you know, I love you, baby. There's, you know, dark stuff in there. You know, great players. And they had just, just had a whole vibe that they were kind of like, evil and very New York too. Well, also uh, going back to the dictators, because eventually when you were no longer in shrapnel, I, by the way, have that five song EP here somewhere. I do. But uh, when you were no longer in shrapnel, when shrapnel disbanded, I think you're on your own for about a year. And then you joined up with handsome Dick Manitoba from the dictators and Andy uh, Chernoff, and you were in Manitoba's wild kingdom at that point. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I was a huge Dictators fan, and, and Richard was a little down in his luck. He was kind of strung out and stuff. But then he cleaned himself up, and uh, he was driving a cab, and he picked me up one night in his cab. And I said, Richard, you've got to start a band again. And long story short, he took my number, and I was going to start a band with him. And then Andy heard about it, so he said, hey, let's do this project. Because Andy, you know, he's a songwriter. And um, yeah, we had a couple of years doing that. It was a lot of fun. Well, I can see why Andy would like the way that you play because um, he was a power pop fan, uh, I know. And a lot of the stuff that I think you were doing with Shrapnel, 
What's the middle song on the five song EP? It sounds like it starts off with guitar that could be the undertones or something to me. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I forget. <laughs> but yeah, we were kind of power pop, especially, especially our first singles that we did, you know, uh-huh. like Combat Love, we did 78. And that was sort of the, I guess you'd call it power pop now. Well, I found a note, uh, Master My Destiny. That's what I think sounds like the undertones. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was, um, yeah, produced by Richie Cordell. Same guys who did the Ramones uh, record at the time. So we got involved. And that song was actually written for Joan Jett. Yeah, that wasn't a, um, an original song of ours. It was written for Joan Jett, and she passed on it. So Richie Cordell said, you guys should record it. And if you listen to it, it does sound kind of like a Joan Jett song. I actually think you guys shared a lot of uh, common DNA with Joan Jett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of like the second wave of punk. Yeah. Yeah, even that uh, five-song uh, EP uh, starts off with a Gary Glitter song, so that could have been Joan Jett, too. You know? Exactly, yeah. That first Shrapnel single was produced by our buddy uh, Jonathan Paley from the Paley Brothers. Who did uh, a song on Rock and Roll High School, I think. Yeah, they, they, yep. did a, they did a song with the Ramones, yeah. Yeah, it's all in the family there. Mm-hmm. Those <laughs> are Boston guys. They are Boston guys. So we have Boston guys in common because uh, Gang Green is a Boston band, and Chris Doherty uh, was a friend of mine from way back when, and I think you produced their album, I Ate One Before You, right? I did. I Ate One Before You. That was, uh, that was a while ago. They, they were a great band, though. They were. They were lots of fun to get drunk with, I can say that for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we love Boston. We used to play at the Rat all the time in Shrapnel, and um, we used to play the Channel, open for yep. a bunch of times, other groups. And, you know... Um, I'm pretty sure I saw you at the channel. Yeah, uh, I with band. played there a lot. I lived in Boston from 83 till now, pretty much. Huh. And so I saw the Ramones a lot here. I'm pretty sure I saw you at that, at that show, but I also think that I was probably not there for much of your set because I was hanging out with Joey before mm-hmm. the show. This is Sonic Typhoon. I'm Lisa Traxler. The year was, I think, 1988 or maybe it was 89. Joey Ramone was late. I was supposed to meet him. I was waiting for him in Paul's Lounge in the East Village in New York City. And I'd been waiting for about a half an hour. No sign of him. So I called his home and he didn't answer. So I figured we just missed connections somehow and I left. He called my answering machine and left this message. Hi, Lisa. It's me. And uh, oh, look, I'm really sorry. The guy told me I missed you by five minutes and I went up to the hill and see if I could catch in all this and that, and I, and I know I was really late, but I, I wasn't f***ing around, all right? So I just wanted to let you, tell you and call me, but. Little did Joey know I was being robbed a couple blocks away. <laughs> That's a story for another time. Now back to our conversation with Ramon's producer, Daniel Ray. So one of the interesting things about the Ramones that a lot of people know about, it's kind of the stuff of legends, is that despite the fact that they had all this shared history and they had a long history together and they did a lot of things, they accomplished a lot, and they had a very uh, unified vision of the band, despite all of that, they didn't get along with each other. Near the end, they they didn't, yeah. In the beginning, beginning they got along good. In the beginning, but then there was like a a dividing point. And um, sometimes... Uh, I felt, at least, that um, even though I knew John and Dee Dee, uh, not well, but I, I did sort of know them, I knew Joey very well, and I was put into that category of Joey's friend. Yeah. <laughs> but you were able to straddle all that, right, and kind of get along with the band and even maybe help them find common ground. Is that correct? 
Um, yeah, I was saying that's probably why I, I was invited to produce the Ramones because I was one of the only people who got along with Joey and Johnny. You know, mm-hmm. you're either in one camp or the other. But I somehow walked the line. If I was talking to Johnny for too long, you know, Joey would kind of like, hey, where's your buddy? Where's your buddy, Johnny? And I'm like, oh, Joey, shut up. Um, and it happened in reverse, too. Johnny would always, you know, say, hey, tell Joey to get here on time. So what was it like to work with them in the studio? One thing I, I did notice about them is that even if they weren't getting along behind the scenes, like they could have a backstage area where... Literally, there had to be somebody that said something from one to the other. They had to have a translator mm-hmm. sometimes. Sometimes, if, yeah. If they were really having a bad day, they just wouldn't speak to each other. But they were always very unified in, in interviews or appearances, and they would finish each other's sentences, and they just had the very same view of things. Yeah. And I think that really worked well for the band. It really worked well for them. Mm-hmm. In the studio, what was that like? Did you ever have uh, times where they didn't see a song the same way or anything? Oh, yeah, all the time. But, um, you know, the, the music was, the band was, always came first. You know, if they had to sit down and discuss something, they would, if it was for the benefit of the band. But um, lots of time I was a go-between. You know, if, if Joey brought in a song and Johnny would hate it for whatever reason, you know, they wouldn't, Johnny wouldn't say, Joey, I hate that song. He, he would tell me, mm-hmm. say, why? And I'd have to kind of break it to Joey and, or we'd change the song a little bit or make it heavier or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it was always a fine line. But in the studio, actually, believe it or not, they weren't in the studio too often at the same time, you know, because we'd run the songs at rehearsal. And, um, you know, rehearsals, sometimes Joey wouldn't be there. He wouldn't really have to be there because he'd be rehearsing his songs at home with, or come to my house and we'd go over the songs. And then, uh, so we would just rehearse the music with the, uh, with the band. And then when it came time to record, you know, the band would record in the daytime and Joey would come in the evenings to do his vocals. So it was kind of worked out, you know, they, they, they figured out a way to do it. Well, you and I have a weird kind of a tie that I thought I would tell you about. You'll be surprised at this. Joey and I, in our phone relationship over low those many years, we would go through periods where we were interested in one thing or another, like, for instance, the Apology Line in New York. Um, we started listening to that when it was still pretty benign. It was pretty much people that were trying to cheat on their wife or something like that. Later, it got into real confessions of actual crimes, and that got pretty dark. So we stopped talking about that at that point. I don't know if he stopped listening, but I did. I sent him a bunch of mixtapes for a long time, and then uh, we went through a time when I was sending him self-help books. Joey didn't need self-help books, but we were talking about different concepts that I was reading about in these. And I sent him Winning Through Intimidation by Robert Ranger, How to Make Friends and Influence People. And um, I also sent him a book about day trading. And he got very interested in that. And we used to watch CNBC and we talked about the money honey, who was Maria Bartiromo, who is a lot different now than she was then. But Yes, we, we don't speak of her. We'll sing the song, but we won't speak of her. She was uh, the title of a song on uh, Joey's posthumous album, Don't Worry About Me, that you produced. Yep. So that's a weird sort of a tie, but an even closer tie is the fact that one of the things that we got very caught up in was Joey loved the idea of using real life to watch imitation life. So for about a year, we watched a lot of All My Children and talked about the improbable life of Erica Kane. And then you wrote a song with Joey called Daytime Dilemma, Dangers yeah. of Love, about soap operas. That's right. What soap opera was that? All My Children. All, all My Children, yeah. It was 
everywhere. People couldn't stop talking about it. Uh, yeah, we wrote a funny song called Dangers of Love, Daytime Dilemma. And that was actually the first song that I got on a Ramones record. I think that was the first time that I heard about you from Joey was, uh, was that because he said, oh, I'm writing a song about all my children, writing it with Daniel Ray. And I'm like, Daniel Ray. And that was the first time I think that I heard about you in our conversations. But yeah, cool. Yeah, that's, that's, that's funny. It's bringing back a lot of memories. I remember yes. that. Mm-hmm. And the day trading. He was really into day trading. One of the things that I think is the most remarkable thing about Joey specifically is that he kept the same phone number for his whole life. It's burned in my memory. I can memorize it right now the same way I can hum, stay with me by the dictators. And you know what else? He, he also kept old answering machines. Really? Yeah. When he had an answering machine and it would break or, you know, wouldn't work properly, he just wouldn't let anyone touch it or throw it away. He'd just put it up in his closet. Because I wow. think sometimes he would like maybe talk a song idea into it or something. So he was always afraid that, you know, he might lose something magical. He was a little bit of his hoarding. But um, yeah, so I think when he died, he had about five old answering machines in his, wow. uh, in his closet. I'm sure they have some interesting messages on them. Yeah. I went back and listened to my old answering machine tapes, and that's where I found these clips from Joey that he left on my answering machine. One of the things that was weird about uh, talking to Joey on the phone is that sometimes his call waiting would beep back in the days when he had call waiting. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, I'll, I'll be right back. And he'd be gone for five minutes. He'd come back and it was just some kid in Iowa that said that he heard that it was Joey's phone number. Yeah, and this actually happened to a friend of mine that very same way that he heard that this was Joey's phone number, he called up and talked to him. And I, I know that it happened because I heard it from both sides. So mm-hmm. I just think it's amazing he wanted to make himself so accessible. No, he did. He had like phone buddies, you know, different, yep. different people. Like, I, I found out later that he talked to um, Jonathan Richmond all the time. He's a huge hero of, of mine. Well, you know, yeah. Modern Lovers' first record was my, one of my favorites. And then um, Joey was doing one of his birthday bashes later on. And um, he said, yeah, Jonathan Richmond's going to come down and do girlfriend <laughs> for me. He never does that song, but he said he'll do it for my birthday. Cool. That's great. Yeah, Jonathan Richmond is another Boston guy. And actually, my good friend Max Ann Sartori was living with uh, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers and counseling the cars of how to reform the band so they would go from Cat and Swing to, oh. uh, to the cars. Yeah. So that's all part of Boston history right there. I know. I yeah. know. I love it. I know my Boston history. I saw the Live at the Rat at CBGB's in like Man. 77, 78, when the Rat album came out. And um, I remember Willie Loco, Alexander, yep. and DMZ. Na- neighborhoods, I think. Neighborhoods, um, Third Rail, Rich mm-hmm. Kids. All these bands played at CBS. It was amazing. Yep. It is an amazing thing. A great, yeah. rich history in both New York and Boston. Hi, Lisa. It's Joey. How you doing? Um, yeah. Uh, I guess call me. It's all right. And um, I don't know what time it is. I guess it's probably around 3.30 or so. Bye. I'm Lisa Traxler, and this is Sonic Typhoon. Now back to our conversation with Ramon's producer, Daniel Ray. So I think it's probably a good thing to mention how it is that you and I happen to be talking right now. And the reason why is because a mutual friend of ours put us in touch because you're going to be auctioning off some of the most amazing memorabilia. And honestly, I just don't even know how you can possibly part with such treasures, but I'm totally wicked jealous of anybody that picks these things up because they are fantastic. Yeah. You know, Keith Richards, 
He looked really great with a guitar, and so did Stevie Ray Vaughan. But in my opinion, nobody ever looked better with a guitar on than Johnny Ramone. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, you can just picture him now, feet planted apart on the stage and guitar slung low, hitting those power chords. His arm would be just like a blur from all those rapid-fire downstrokes. Johnny's main guitar from the very earliest days of the Ramones was a white Moserite. That guitar is part of this auction. Yeah, his main guitar, the white Moserite that he, he bought because no one else played it. That's why he bought the Moserite. Just, it looked cool. A Ventures model, right? Yep, Ventures 2, rare model. It is, and it's just, it's an iconic guitar. It's one that's, for anybody that went to see the Ramones or that knows about uh, such instruments, it is instantly recognizable. And, um, of course, the history on it, just absolutely amazing. One of the instruments that really reinvented rock and roll when it needed it. It changed rock and roll, for sure. Another thing that's up in your auction is uh, Johnny's amp, the original amp that they formed the band with. Is that right? Yeah, that's from 74, 75. That's, that goes way back. And I know that John signed that. Yep. John was a, a big collector himself, so he always knew the importance of signing things and yeah. dating them and doing it you know, properly, and, which was, turned out to be great. I'm always amazed by his handwriting, too. It's always so precise. Yeah. And it's very even. He always signs things exactly the same way. Yep. Sort of an amazing thing. Now, other stuff that's in this auction include um, some of uh, Joey's mics. Uh, are those SM57s, 58s? 58s. 58s. Yeah. These are weird things. I'm not, I wasn't, never thought of myself as like a, a collector or anything. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, Joey did their last show in uh, L.A., you know, the, the final Ramones concert. And uh, after the show, everyone in the band, you know, you got your amps, you got your drums. And Joey was handed his three shore microphones. <laughs> like, thank you. you know, <laughs> instead of a gold watch, here's your mics. So Joey came back to New York and he's like, hey, you take these, all right? I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> I had a studio, so he gave me his, his mics. And now well, I guess, you know, they're a piece of history. They are, along with some of this other stuff. Um, just looking through this, I see some handwritten lyrics from both Dee Dee and from Joey. And yeah. uh, it's that was incredible. another thing I didn't, you know, these are just sessions or working at the house together. Mm -hmm. And I just, uh, I'll throw this in the draw. You know, why not? And then after it's all said and done, I had a stack, you know. So every year around Christmas time, I'd whip out Danny Says and play it on the radio. And I always have uh, Joey introduce it. And I see that one of the sets of lyrics includes at least some iteration of that song. Yeah. Yeah, which is, is great. Is working, uh, that, uh, from a, no a notebook has some ideas, song ideas for that song and also uh -huh. for rock and, rock and roll radio. And those are part of this auction as well. Posters, early collectible things. There's something from punk. Yeah, There's a bunch something? of things from punk. Like I said, Shrapnel, you know, we used to be managed by legs and we used to sleep at the old punk magazine office and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we got, got a lot of early punk memorabilia. Mm -hmm. Once again, at the time, these are just things I found recently in a box. You know? People might be finding this interview years after this, and they'll just be like kicking themselves because this <laughs> happened a long time ago. Um, don't kick yourself. You missed the, the auction if you did. But if, you, uh, if you're catching this live, then you're probably or close to it around yeah, this come time. On, come on down and bid on something. Well, I might have to come down there myself and say hello. Are you going to be I'm, there? I'm going to come up. That sounds like a great thing. I, I yeah. really want to see this stuff again in person. I've seen John's, uh, Johnny's guitar a lot of times on stage and up close, but uh, just to be around that stuff is really, it means yeah. so much to me. The band means so much to me, and, 
I miss Joey and all the guys. Hard to believe they're all gone. It is. The day doesn't go by where I don't think of them. Hi, Lisa. This is Joey. How you doing? Um, yeah, uh, I guess call me. It's all right. And uh, I don't know what time it is. I guess it's probably around 3.30 or so. Bye. I'm Lisa Traxler, and this is Sonic Typhoon. Now back to our conversation with Ramon's producer, Daniel Ray. So regarding producing, I just want to touch on Ronnie Spector for a minute, because I know that you worked on Ronnie Spector with Joey on her stuff. And I'm wondering how that worked with Phil Spector, having worked with the Ramones earlier. Is that how he got involved with Ronnie Spector? No, I th- Joey was always a huge fan of Ronnie Spector. And if, if you listen closely, you can hear a little bit of Ronnie in some of Joey's vocal technique. They're like, wow, oh, they want stuff. And, um, you know, Joey's always been a huge fan of classic rock and roll. He always loved Phil Spector, the wall of sound. Even after that record, that you know, didn't go over every, very well with the band. Joey had a good time doing it. He told me some weird stories about Phil Spector, though. He said that Phil would call him up in the middle of the night and say, Joey, listen to this. And they'd turn on the faucet and just leave it running for like an hour. And Joey felt like he had to sit there and listen to it because it's Phil Spector. Oh, he's a nut. Phil Spector was a nut. (laughs) He said said it was an exhausting experience, but really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I remember Joey telling me that when they were learning um, Baby, I Love You, that um, Phil would be at the piano with Joey sitting next to him for hours and hours just going over the song. (laughs) So that must have been exciting because, you know, Joey probably pictured John Lennon doing the same thing, you know? Yeah. I've heard some very strange stories from a friend of mine, Billy West, who is a notable voice talent. He was on the Howard Stern Show. Do you know Billy? I know who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he is Futurama, and he's the red M&M and stuff, and he's told me some interesting stories about being at Phil's house for a party. Who else have you worked with? I, I've, I've got notes about uh, White Zombie and the Misfits, of course, and uh, Richard Hell. You worked with Richard Hell? Yeah, we just did Richard Hell. We did one, like a spoken word record, a musical spoken word beatnik kind of record. <laughs> and um, I worked with uh, Masters of Reality. I played in that band for a little while. Ah. With Ginger Baker on the drums. Amazing. Yeah, wonderful Ginger Baker. <laughs> Was he difficult to get along with? <laughs> yeah. He was. Yes, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, but a great drummer. Amazing drummer. When he was on, there was nothing, no one better. You know, he was very unique. He was he certainly was dexterous. He was yeah, yeah very was. good, good player. And the Independence. Did you ever work with Jesse Mallon? I did. We produced uh, the first Degeneration recordings. Me and Andy ah. Chernoff. We actually financed and produced their first record, which they ended up redoing. Some of it came out as forty fives. But uh, yeah, me and Andy sort of, I'm not going to say discovered them, but we did their first recordings. Uh-huh. Well, Jesse's a nice guy. I met him at uh, Joey's Memorial right after he passed away, actually, in New York. Yeah, yeah. The first one? Yeah, the one that was really big with the food fight. Oh, yeah, I played, I, I played on stage with a bunch of, uh, bunch of people. Yeah, that was um, a wonderful, wonderful uh, tribute. It was a wonderful tribute, and the best part of it was the food fight. I think Joey would have enjoyed that absolutely the most of anything. Yeah. Is that the whole place erupted with those little cakes they handed out for his birthday. And instead of eating them, he had like thousands of people throwing cake everywhere. Quite a remarkable time and uh, wonderful tributes and a lot of tears and a lot of laughter and uh, fitting for remembering such a remarkable person. So, yep. Yep. And we did, we, we did Joey good that night. He would, have, he would have been impressed because he loved throwing those parties and concerts. You know, he did it all the time and 
it was a lot of work and he didn't really have to do it and he spent money, his own money doing it. It was, you know, everyone had a good time, always. And he'd always champion younger bands, you know, which was great. He'd have, you know, Debbie Harry and Lemmy there, but he'd also have like four or five completely unknown new groups. Well, that's uh, kind of how he was with me about shrapnel because I was in radio and he's, so he's working me on shrapnel and he worked me on Jesse at one point. The independence. The independence, yes. Yep. And he was definitely a a big fan of of people that were trying. Actually, he even recorded in the studio with me. It ended up not working out too well because we had some bad technical difficulties that night, which I won't go into, but it was pretty. But um, he was going to sing back up on a a doo-wop version of uh, the Led Zeppelin song Jamaica that I was doing. Oh, cool. So it didn't end up working out. But we Oh, had, that's too bad. We had an interesting time, though. I got to tell you what happened after that. Um, I was driving him back to his hotel. This was after they played in Dallas. And we went to a club in Dallas in Deep Ellum where he was greeted with great enthusiasm by the crowd, <laughs> carried off for about an hour. And then I finally found him and took him and we went to the studio to do this session late at night. It didn't work out, but I was taking him back and I got lost in Dallas with him and my little Honda. And, you know, Joey was six, probably six, five. He said six, four, but probably six, five when he stood yeah, up six, straight. Six, five. He was. he was a huge guy and he couldn't fit in my car very well. He kind of spilled out over it. <laughs> and so I got lost and I stopped at a 7-Eleven to get directions. And, and I went inside and I went to the counter. And when I turned around, all these people were up against the window looking at him, spilling out of my car. And I don't know if they were staring because they knew who he was or just because he looked like that. He was really quite remarkable looking coming out of this tiny little car. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. It's like a, a clown show. It was very strange. Yeah, but, there were a lot of funny, funny Joey uh, moments like that. I remember once, because um, we grew up in New Jersey on the, near the shore, and we took Joey to our, my parents' beach club in Seabright, New Jersey. You know, those beach clubs with the pools, and, the, and um, Joey was in the pool. And if you can imagine Joey Ramon in the swimming pool with his long hair, his glasses were off, and these were the days where if you had long hair and you were a guy, you still had to wear a bathing cap. So the lifeguard comes up and goes, Hey, is, is he okay? <laughs> yeah, he's fine. He's fine. Oh, okay. He should really put a, uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> Joey Ramon in, a, in the suburban swimming pool at a beach club <laughs> is definitely a sight for sore eyes. I'm sure it was. I think it's probably a good time for me to tell you um, how I met Joey. I was working at a tiny little radio station in Wichita, Kansas, and I was doing afternoon drive there even though I was really, really young. I was way too young to drink. And somehow I had this shift. But anyway, the Ramones were coming to town and I begged the record company to get me an interview because I was such a huge Ramones fan. So I didn't know who I'd get. And I was sitting there looking at the parking lot out of my window playing records. And the little car pulls up from the record company guy. And I'm like, let's see who it is. Let's see who it is. The door on the opposite side opens and I see this thing and it's black and it goes up and up and up and up. (laughs) And it's Joey's hair. He's wearing the pink and black stripes and the pink glasses. And it's like, it's definitely Joey Ramon. And I'm just like dancing. I'm so happy. He comes in and we have a great couple of breaks. And then I go to a commercial break. And just as I hit the commercial and turn off the mics, the door flies open and it's the general manager for the radio station. And he is hot. He is so mad. He is sweating profusely and stammering and stuttering. And he addresses Joey and he says, young man, we don't say crap on the air here. 
he goes off on him for like a minute. Then he finally starts to wind down. He says, one more thing. And Joey says, look at him. He says, are you chewing gum? And Joey says, um, yeah. He made Joey spit the gum into his hand, <laughs> like your mom or something. So then when he stormed out, it was so funny. We were instantaneous great friends. That's great. Yeah, that should be in the Joey Ramone movie. No, Joey, Joey was easily recognized. When, when we would walk down the street in New York, you know, cab drivers would, hey, Joey. And Joey would, yeah, just kind of turn a little bit, keep walking. He used to say that about being on the road. He said, yeah, touring is interesting. All the truckers know me. Exactly. He was definitely uh, recognizable, a very interesting cat. I'll tell you another funny memory about Joey. Joey would wake up in the morning. He, he, didn't, he would drink coffee in the morning, but he didn't have a coffee maker or know how to make coffee. So he would every morning call the deli downstairs and order two coffees. And it wasn't quite enough, so he offered two coffees and two waters, kind of big bottles of Evian. So he'd bring up his coffee and water. He'd come back for tour, and this would go on for a few weeks. And um, I was away or something, and then I came over to Joey's house, and I walked in his apartment, and it looked like a surreal ad for Evian. On every flat surface, there was a bottle <laughs> of Evian water, because he couldn't keep up with the, the drinking it. The coffee he would, but the water he couldn't. So we're just sitting at his kitchen table, looking around at all these bottles of Evian, and in perfect Joey fashion, you go, hey, you want a water? <laughs> and I just... I love him for that. That is really funny and so charming. Maybe she should have just taken him over to his mom's house. Wasn't she in the same building? She was upstairs, uh, right? She used, this was a little after that, but yeah. He had so many things about him that were like that, that were just kind of so uniquely Joey Ramon. Yep. And he didn't, you know, he didn't talk, a, in the early days, he didn't talk a lot, but he would like say one or two sentences that would just like sum up everything. And everyone at the table would go, oh, couldn't have said it better. You know, he had that, that knack. He did. Do you have any Dee Dee or Johnny stories? I, I miss Dee Dee in, in a different way, a special way. Dee Dee was like a little kid, you know. I wrote actually most of my songs with Dee Dee because he was a very prolific writer. He'd write lyrics all the time. And, and um, you know, he had his dark times. He, he could be mean and, and dark, but he was also very innocent and pure. And um, we, were, we were partners. We were writing partners. And uh, he decided wants to do a rap album, which was interesting. <laughs> and I've decided to help him with it, you know, because he wanted me to help him with it. And he was my writing partner, thinking that it probably would never come out. But lo and behold, it did come out. And that was Dee Dee's uh, short-lived rap career. Yeah, Dee Dee King, right? Dee Dee King, yep. Which is, uh, you know, some people put it on their favorite album list and other people put it on their worst album list, which is always a good place to be, I think. Yeah, you want to avoid that middle ground where you're yeah, nice. Exactly. One of those um, punk um, fanzines reviewed the record, and they said, we would say it's, it's the, the worst record of the year, but we only review records that are sung in English, which I thought was funny. <laughs> Johnny, you know, I always, I always respected Johnny because he kept the whole thing together, you know. Mm -hmm. It must have been hard for him. Didi was strung out, and Joey with his, you know, being late all the time. And, but uh, Johnny persevered, you know. He was like a, a general. You know, he kept the machine moving. And he didn't, you know, he didn't write... Too many songs, but he always made sure that the songs they did stood up to the Ramones. You know, yep. lots of times people would bring in songs that just weren't right for the Ramones. You know, and Johnny would say no. How did he feel about that KKK song? Did he uh, resent the fact that that was kind of about him? I think. I think he liked it. Well, I mean, there's a whole debate of whether it's that song's about him 
or not. Because apparently it was written a little before the, the incident happened, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I never heard from Joey that it was written about him. So um, I really appreciate you spending time talking to us today. I mean, your work with the Ramones and with all the other bands you've produced and all the other music that you've made has been just remarkable. And I love the New York scene. I love the New York scene, especially from the 70s and 80s. And it wouldn't have been the same without you. Uh, well, thank you very much. And I was just lucky to be there. Well, I wish you luck on your upcoming auction, and I wish everyone luck who's bidding on these things, because certainly there's something to have for the ages. Uh, Just incredible, incredible stuff. So perhaps I'll see you down in, in Boston. I hope so. All right. Thank you so much, Daniel Ray. Thank you. If you're interested in betting on Johnny Ramone's iconic ventures to guitar, his electro harmonics Mike Matthews Freedom Amplifier, Joey Ramone's Shure SM58 microphones, handwritten lyrics by Dee Dee and Joey Ramone, original punk magazine artwork, or other items in the auction we discussed, you're invited to attend in person at the Newberry Hotel, 1 Newberry Street in Boston, at 3 p.m. on September 25th, 2021. The auction's open to the public, and you can bid online by visiting rrauction.com or invaluable.com. Check it out well in advance so that you can register to bid. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm Lisa Traxler, and this has been Sonic Typhoon. (laughs) 